I'm sure at some point I'm going to come up with a better, more formal title for this talk, but at the moment the working title is Where Does It All Go Wrong? <laughs> Posing that as a question and perhaps to unpack it just a little bit. Throughout our lives, I think each one of us has longings, aspirations, values, sometimes articulated and sometimes unarticulated, that guide our acts, our choices, our directions. We follow the paths that we place our feet on. Now, some of these aspirations and these longings, they can be very personal. But many of them are probably, likely, very universal. And these longings, certainly in, in Buddhist psychology or Buddhist terminology, are, are called kusala. They're, they're noble. They're the whole domain of noble and wholesome desires that move us through our lives. We could name a few of them. The longing for happiness, the longing for safety, to be protected, the longing to live a creative and meaningful and embodied life, the longing to be free from fear and distress, the longing to have the emotional and psychological resilience and maturity to, that enables us to navigate our way through this life without floundering, without being overwhelmed. We probably aspire to and long to have the maturity and the sensitivity, actually, that allows us to fully appreciate and delight in the lovely moments in our lives. We probably also aspire to have the maturity and the inner resources that would allow us to meet the adversity and the difficult and the afflictive with compassion and with insight and with balance. Now, there are times when these longings are realized. There are the moments when these wholesome desires are fulfilled. And there are other times, and I suspect this is true for everyone, when we feel just a little bit mystified, a little bit bewildered, when the shape of our life and the shape of our mind and the shape of what life brings to us seems somewhat removed from the life that we envisaged or the mind that we hoped for inwardly. We see ourselves longing for, we probably all love to have a mind that feels calm and that feels clear, and that feels compassionate. And yet, we may, with more frequency than we like, meet the mind that feels confused or reactive or impulsive. We would probably all like to have a life guided by kindness and compassion. And yet, 
anger and anxiety and judgment arise again more often than we would wish for. Most of us would probably really like to have quite a peaceful heart, to have quite a peaceful mind, and yet don't we sometimes find that agitation and discontent are quite familiar visitors? And it's interesting, this gap, because this, this gap, this sort of disconnect between our longings and our aspirations and at times our felt reality of the moment that can feel very different, this is where most people in this life begin this path. They're interested in the disconnect. They're interested in the dissonance. They want to learn how to heal that dis dissonance. And for most people, this is the beginning of a path of cultivation. It's the beginning of a path of investigation, really dedicated to understanding what dissonance. Is everybody all right with the word dissonance, by the way? Really understanding what the nature of <coughs> dissonance actually is, how it comes about, how it is born. The sense of being mystified or bewildered that initially arises, I think, out of the awareness of the divide, sometimes a very vast divide between what we long for and what we experience, we all know that that can be met with a whole range of different reactions. It's a place where people can become very judgmental. You know, I should be better than this. You know, I should, ha I should have a better mind. And if you're a mindfulness teacher, you have an extra burden here, by the way. Because as a mindfulness teacher, you really should have a better mind, we tell ourselves. <laughs> Sometimes we get very despairing, you know, feeling that uh, very little changes or it feels a bit hopeless. Or we can be get very agitated. And this is another response, a very familiar response, of trying to, to force our life and to force our mind and to force our, ourselves into being some semblance of the mind and life that we expect or even demand of ourselves. Or dissonance, I think, can be met in a far more intentional and curious way. And to do this, if we do this, then we raise the question of what is it that obscures our mind's capacity, our heart's capacity for clarity, for stillness, for creativity? What is it that obscures our mind, our heart's capacity that is present in all of us for a very profound kindness, very profound compassion, very profound wakefulness, because we know those seeds live within each of us. It is not that you're exempted or exiled. These seeds live within each of us. And I've always felt that the great genius, actually, of the Buddha was not to endeavor to import some esoteric, exotic sense of ideals or, or goals, but I think the great genius of the Buddha was always to build upon what we have already glimpsed in our lives. 
no matter how briefly. We've all glimpsed moments of unhesitating compassion, unhesitating kindness. We've probably all glimpsed sometimes unsought-for moments of, of stillness and, and peace, inwardly born. So we know those seeds are there. We know those possibilities are there. So where does it all go wrong? Where, what is it that obscures or stifles those seeds? It's an important question. It was the same question that people raised 2,500 years ago in the time of the, the Buddha. People grappled with the same questions around dissonance and disconnect. There's a certain timelessness to the human mind, no matter how conditions change. Now, the Buddha recognized, as I'm sure we all recognize, that there is a certain tension in waking up. And I'm sure you've experienced that so many times here on the retreat. I mean, have any of you come into the hall with the intention to, to fall asleep or space out or, or, or just, you know, this is really good sitting to get overwhelmed, you know, I think I'll do that. No. We, we come into the hall with a different kind of intention, don't we? And we do our best. And yet somehow it seems to all go wrong at times. Something happens to those intentions. And we see that on one side of this tension that I, lies our deepest aspirations, our deepest intentions to be clear, to be calm, to be kind, to develop our capacity for wakefulness. And alongside those intentions, you know, and I think of you, think of almost visualizing this actually. Here in one hand, you know, we hold those intentions and those aspirations. And here in this other hand, we hold the whole world of habit, psychological habit, emotional <coughs> habit, the world of impulse, the world of confusion. Um, these habits of mind, many of our psychological habits, often very historical, have the effect of sabotaging intention. They have the effect of almost hijacking or overwhelming intention. They make us forgetful. Habit makes us forgetful. And, you know, and we see this tension throughout the whole of the path of mindfulness, isn't it? This, this balancing act, this living alongside the, the, the aspiration for mindfulness and the habit of forgetfulness. Isn't this what people are really grappling with as they endeavor to bring about very profound changes? I'm sure you've seen your clients and your patients grappling with this as we grapple with it ourselves. Now, it is, of course, very easy to view this tension as being a negative tension. In reality, I think it's the creative tension. There, this is the classroom. There is no curriculum outside of this classroom. This is where every path of waking up begins, is to begin to address this tension. Now our minds, and, and I just want to just bear in mind, and you know, uh, again, in a bit of psychology, and I think John, John mentioned this sort of mind-body 
into relationship. But when we speak about mind, we also speak about heart. You could interchange these words. Now, our minds are involved in this ongoing process, this interface, we could say, uh, with the world around us and the world within us. And in that interface between our mind and the inner world, the outer world, we see there's a whole spectrum of responses and reactions that arise moment to moment. And some of these responses are really skillful. They're rooted in calm. They're rooted in understanding. They're rooted in kindness. And there are other responses or reactions which feel far more habitual, far more compulsive, far more impulsive. And they're unhelpful. And, you know, we can just see that. We can see often the ways that we layer dukkha upon dukkha through those reactions of aversion, of hatred, of judgment, of blame, of shame, you know, this compounding process that often leads us to places very, very far from where we want to be and from where our intentions actually began. Now, the Buddha distilled this range of habitual reactivity into quite a short list. And, you know, usually I don't encourage people to do a lot of memorizing of lists. As you know, Buddhist teaching is filled with lists. This is actually a good list to memorize. Um, to try and remember, to try and build into your, your own investigation or, or your own exploration. Now, this list is spoken explicitly about over and over again in more, this more foundational tradition. Um, it's spoken about much less in MBCT and MBSR, which has always been a kind of a bit of a puzzle to us. And it's an ongoing conversation about why it is, because it is absolutely definite that your clients and your patients will go through this list as much as you do. And the amazing thing is that I find in teaching that when I explicitly speak about this list of, of reactivity, it's often heard with a great sense of relief. Because suddenly it's not all so personal. You know, there's a sense of, oh, this is what the mind does. This is what the mind does in the face of distress. So this is what the mind does in the face of discomfort. And the relief is kind of like not taking it all so personally. I mean, I'm sure you may have, you know, had moments of this during the retreat so far, you know, when you can be sitting and you're just struggling to stay awake or your mind is riotous and, you know, your, your body is just absolute torture realm and you look around you in the room and everybody else seems to be sitting like a Buddha, and you think, oh, I'm the only one who is really having this really hard time. You know, everybody else is just easing their way, sailing their way through this retreat, you know, and here I am, you know, the, the, the one who really can't do it, you know. So this list is of, of reactivity, it's interesting because it lives in in the third way of establishing mindfulness in terms of being states of mind. It also lists in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness as being uh, psychological phenomena. 
Um, this list of, of, of states, this list of reactions, often referred to as the hindrances. Now, many of you, please, if you're very, very experienced in meditation, please don't let your eyes glaze over at this point. <laughs> then they may not be gone. Now, there are often referred to as the hindrances, but more accurately, they're often, they're, they're, they're veiling factors, they're clouding factors, they distort our capacity to see things the way they are. They, it's, it's like a fog or a mist or, or seeing through these kind of colored lens so that we can't actually really see what's going on. They are also, the Buddha described them, John and I were talking about this earlier, as generators of mental illness, primary generators of mental illness. Now, the Buddha's definition of mental illness may be different than ours, you know, because I, I think, you know, a few minutes of having the same thought might be come under that term, or, you know, having a, you know, a, a, an hour of confusion might come under that term. But they're gener certainly generators of psychological and emotional distress. Now, let's go through the list a bit, just, and I will revisit the list a few times, just in case you forget it, because this is one of the nature of this list, is it makes us forget. Right? <laughs> The craving for sensual pleasure. That one sink in. Ill will. Uh, sometimes the awkward term sloth and torpor, but sleepiness and dullness. Restlessness and worry. And skeptical doubt. Now, sometimes we, we can speak, and I will actually speak, about these patterns individually. And actually, some of you here may find that you have developed far more expertise in one of these patterns than others. But generally speaking, this is a multi-pack experience. These are interacting patterns. These are interacting patterns. Sensual craving can stimulate a lot of restlessness. Restlessness and worry itself can trigger a great deal of doubt, um, which in turn can trigger sloth and dullness because we just want to check out of the painfulness of it. I'll just walk you through a little scenario, okay? I'm sure this is, by the way, not, not happened to anyone here. Um, food, mealtimes, you know, quite important on retreat. Events, we don't have many events. So we really rather like mealtimes. Okay, so we start to think about mealtimes. Hmm? We actually might even start to plan around mealtimes. Well, you know, maybe, maybe if I didn't do the mindful movement, I, I could be first in the lunch line. Sensual craving, right, you got that? Then we, we think, well, then I might, but I'm a little bit worried about what people would think if they always saw me first in the lunch line. I might give it a go anyway, one day, there I am. How did those other people get in the lunch line before me? A little bit of aversion, they must be really greedy types. <laughs> and, so they have a little bit of ill will going on here. But then I think, well, maybe I'm also a greedy type. 
So the ill will starts to turn around inwardly. If I was a good yogi, actually, I wouldn't be first in the lunch line. Doubt. I can't do this. You know, it's not possible for me. Oh, gosh, that's so difficult. I think I might just check out. That's a much safer option. I'll just kind of sink into some numbness. So you can see that, you know, this little illustration, you can see the sort of interwoven pattern of it. It often gets woven around very, very simple things. It doesn't take much, by the way, to trigger these patterns. They're often just kind of like a background hum in our consciousness. Now, when we look at these carefully at the, these patterns, what we actually do see, although they often exist in this sort of background hum, we actually see so clearly how they are implicated in every single psychological and emotional storm we experience. Look carefully at any storm and you will see these patterns are present in states of anxiety, in states of depression, uh, in states of jealousy, in feelings of inadequacy, you see these patterns. Craving for sensual pleasure, ill will, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness, and worry and doubt. Now, it's very easy to create some quite unhelpful attitudes around these patterns. I think this is even worse in experienced meditators, actually. They start to think, well, these are just kind of a nuisance. You know, these are something that happens in beginnings of retreat, you know, and then I'll get over them, and then my practice will really begin. You know. then, then, then I'll be ready, really, to, to start doing this retreat properly. In the Buddhist teaching of awakening, the, uh, these, these five obscurations are not nuisances. They're not inconveniences to get rid of. But they're deeply embedded emotional and psychological habits that ask to be understood. Because these are the patterns that suffocate and deny wakefulness, insight, the kindness that is possible for us. You know, the more I teach, the more I find myself talking about two things, these patterns and about metta or kindness. Because what we actually see is that these five patterns, they, they have the effect of creating and recreating distress, and they are saboteurs of intentionality. They are saboteurs of intentionality. They sabotage the intentions that we most deeply value. You know, you think about this just on a daily basis. You know, most of us in our life, you know, more often than not, you know, we go out our door in the morning with some intention to be a fairly decent human being. You know, we want to be as kind as we can. You know, we want to be as tolerant as we can. You know, we want to be as, as warm as we can towards the world as calm as we can, and how long does it last? The train is late. We, we just feel that the kind of chuntering, complaining mind coming along, you know. So we meet the uncooperative person. You know, our back hurts. It's raining and we forgot our umbrella. We get difficult news. And we find ourselves switching so quickly, isn't it, in a moment, into a, into a hindrance attack. 
just into a hindrance attack, just spinning those loops, you know, of muttering and complaining and berating and judging and blaming. Think about your walking path. What takes you away from your walking path? Hmm? What sabotages that intention in a walking path? I think this is a really interesting exploration. You know, how you go to a walking period, you know, probably with the intention, I hope, of, you know, completing it or sustaining it. And then suddenly, you know, oh, how did I end up at the tiern? You know? How, how did I end up, you know, with, with uh, walking with my eyes, kind of like looking for something to delight me? <laughs> you ever notice that in, in, in yourself? You know, you start out, I'm in the body, and then suddenly I'm quite disembodied. I'm, I'm in these prowling, hungry eyes, you know, looking for something. Oh, no, it's a good time for a nap. It's so interesting just to really begin to spot the play of these, these patterns. So what we're really asked to envisage in this path is the genuine possibility of a life and a mind and a heart that is no longer governed by patterns of reactivity. In the Buddha's teaching, these five patterns, the craving for sensual pleasure, the ill will, the sleepiness and dullness, the restlessness and worry, and the skeptical doubt, he talks about a continuum that these five patterns are actually the five manifestations of the three deeper strands of craving, hatred, and delusion. And that those three are actually the manifestation of something even deeper, a kind of core confusion or distortion or misunderstanding of the way things actually are. So, you know, it's really important to catch, have a sense of that continuum. The way in which those core distortions, confusions, ma get manifested in craving, hatred, and delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion, how greed, hatred, and delusion get manifested in the five hindrance factors. They're the more active face. This is what, where we actually see often much more clearly what is going on. So if we begin to uproot these five obscuring, distorting factors, we are actually really engaged with uprooting greed, hatred, and delusion. And then we are really engaged with uprooting confusion or, as it's often referred to in Buddhist psychology, ignorance, distortion, that causes suffering. This is why we are engaged. Because this, this is, a, you know, the, these hindrance patterns, these obscuring patterns, they are the ways in which suffering and distress is created and recreated. The, so the Buddha used a number of different, different uh, images to describe this, this kind of freedom. He said, being free from the grip of sensual craving is like being free from debt. Because what sensual craving does, it ties us to a world of conditions. It ties us to the world and saying, make me happy. So we're always kind of indebted to a world of conditions. It's like being free from debt. He says, being free from ill will is like recovering from an illness. 
And I really rather like that image because, I mean, if any of us really, you know, as we become more sensitized and, and we feel ripples and waves of ill will, it is like an illness. You know, it is, it is painful in the body. It's painful in the mind. He says, being free from sleepiness and dullness is like being released from prison. Oh, by the way, when I speak about sleepiness and dullness, I'm not talking about the honest fatigue that people have when they come into a retreat, you know, overextended and, and, and tired. I'm actually talking about a mental state of dissociation. Okay. So he says, being freed from sleepiness and dullness, like being freed from prison. Because, I mean, if any of you have at all experienced sleepiness and dullness here so far, you know, it's a very contracted space, isn't it? It's a very heavy space. It's very, it's very contracted. So being free from restlessness and worry is like being free from slavery. And he says, being free from skeptical doubt is like crossing a dangerous desert safely. And he used other similes to describe the experience of the hindrances. And he says, being in the grip of sensual craving, sensual desire, is like looking into a pool of water trying to see our reflection, but the pool of water is colored by dye. He says, being in the grip of aversion or ill will, it's like looking into a pool of water trying to see ourselves, but the water is boiling. He says, sloth and torpor, sleepiness and dullness, it's like looking into a pool of water that's actually just covered with algae. Um, and that in the grip of restlessness and worry, it's like looking into a pool of water where it's agitated and stirred by strong winds. And being in the grip of doubt, it's like, it's like looking into a pool of water that's dark and muddy. So what do we do with mindfulness practice? Well, with mindfulness practice, the first thing that we do is we turn these patterns, we turn these states into objects of meditation. We turn them into objects of meditation, objects of mindfulness that can be explored, that can be investigated, that we can be curious about. That seems like perhaps a small thing, but it's huge, you know? Rather than, oh, I am such a dull person, or I'm such a greedy person, or I'm such an aversive person. Ah, let us look at this pattern in the light of curiosity and mindfulness. The other part, certainly in, in, more, in, in this more foundational tradition, um, we actually cultivate the qualities of heart and mind that actually really have the effect of uprooting these qualities, these patterns. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, sustained attention, equanimity. That cultivation is something that's very, very explicitly taught in more traditional teaching. It's, it's quite implicit, by the way, those, the cultivation of those qualities is quite implicit in eight-week programs. Actually training people's minds the, in their capacity to develop those qualities. It, in the light of mindfulness, first we begin to know these patterns, these obscuring patterns as they arise, and we begin to develop an emotional vocabulary for them. This is helpful. To know aversion is aversion, 
to know craving for sensual pleasure as it is, to know sleepiness and dullness, to know restlessness and worry, to know skeptical doubt, to begin to develop that vocabulary, to actually know this, to be able to identify it, rather than it just being a place of murky confusion. We're actually learning to spot these patterns. And that knowing is actually the ground of responsiveness, of how we can meet these patterns more skillfully. So I want to go into them a little bit individually. Now, this first one, this, this craving for sensual pleasure, doesn't sound really that bad, does it? When we think about it, you know, we're, we're sensual beings, and we're interfacing with a world of sensual objects, both pleasant and unpleasant. And as a hindrance that causes suffering, this craving for sensual pleasure is not, by the way, a rejection of all that is lovely in the world, hmm? all that delights us. It's not a rejection of the, the loveliness of sound, of sights, of nature, of beauty, of music, of poetry. You know, sometimes I, I see people being in, in, on this pathway a long time, you know, and they, they, they're always kind of suspicious about sensual appreciation, you know, things bound to be a minefield, you know, I better not go there because I'm surely going to fall into craving, you know, and this kind of sense of closing down and almost mistaking uh, or misnaming uh, denial and disconnection for renunciation. So that's not what this, we are asked to do here, understand. In reality, we meet so much that is lovely. And you really see how it gladdens the heart. And actually the appreciation of, of the lovely, I think, is a very big part of the fabric of awakening. You know, that sensitivity, that attunement, that receptivity, that appreciation, and the, you know, really the capacity to be touched. And the lovely comes to us. We don't need to chase it. You know, you step outside here, and the sight of the trees and the bigness of the sky... It is all can touch us and reminds us to be deeply present. And the craving for sensual pleasure is something quite different. This is a pursuit. This is a pursuit. It is much more toxic and it has a much bigger underlying kind of ideology that, that moves it. Some of the simple things. We want to be comfortable. We have a very low tolerance level for discomfort. We want to feel good, we don't want to feel bad. This is very part of being very human, and it's very hardwired into our psyche to turn towards the pleasant and to turn away from the unpleasant. But our wanting turns into something else. Our wanting turns into something else. It turns into insistence, it turns into demand, it turns into need, it turns into the ways in which we posit the source of happiness in objects and events and experiences and things that we become. Uh, you know, years ago I remember going to a supermarket and going up and down in a parallel way with his mother and a young child and the, and the young child in the shopping trolley you know, started out in a little quiet voice, you know, Mommy, I really like that. A louder voice, Mommy, I, I really want that. A very much louder voice. Mommy, I really need that. 
and ending in tears. We are much more sophisticated. Um, we've learned not to articulate those things, but we can still believe that my very survival really depends on sustaining the contact with the pleasant experience and avoiding the unpleasant. And this manifestation of sensual craving, this pursuit, I think really sabotages actually our capacities for appreciation and receptivity and stillness. It turns into a hunger and an appetite that can't be quenched, that has no answer. This is where this hindrance so relates to the the, the force of greed underneath it that become, can become such a driving force in, in our world and in our own lives, patterning our relationships, our actions, our thoughts, our obsessions. It's kind of like the never enough mind, isn't it? Do you know that mind? There's never enough mind. It's like that, you know, in the Tibetan cosmology, they, they use this image of the, the hungry ghost realm you know, of these beings who kind of float through life, you know, with these huge bellies and these very skinny necks and tiny pinpoint mouths, you know. It's an appetite that can never be satisfied. And it's interesting because this appetite that can never be satisfied arises from a sense of lack. It arises from a sense of insufficiency. But I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. And yet the very appetite goes back, turns back to reinforce that sense of insufficiency. And it's a sort of toxic, closed feedback loop that where has our intention for kindness, our intention for respect, our intentions for compassion disappeared too in that kind of intensity of those, those moments of appetite. It's a culture of inner deprivation, and so much, and it's a mechanism we use to try and secure happiness and a sense of sufficiency in places where we can't be found. I think we need to be very careful, actually. You know, we think it just doesn't matter, you know, these, these little forays into craving for sensual pleasure, you know, don't seem to be too bad. I think we need to be quite careful about what kind of message we're sending to ourselves about dependency and about lack and about insufficiency. When there is sensual craving, you probably have also noticed there's a ground for quite a lot of narrative, quite a lot of story, like it's quite a juicy story, sensual craving. You know, we fantasize about the perfect moment, we anticipate what might come next, you know, the what's not now. We, we idealize, you know, experiences of contentment or, or joy or peace. And there's a lot of narrative. Because in some ways, cravings for sensual pleasure, we almost see its fulfillment as being the fulfillment of the idealized me. It's like my sense of identity is actually going to be built upon my capacity, my success. <coughs> my successes in the craving for sensual pleasure. There's a lot of antidotes for this craving, you know, that are talked about in the Buddhist tradition. One of them certainly is the cultivation of contentment. Contentment, ah, learning to rest within what is here. 
Sometimes one of the antidotes is to ask the question, you know, what in this moment is truly lacking? And we might, in asking that question, discover that actually we have everything we need in this moment for compassion. We have everything we need in this moment for sensitivity. We have everything we need in this moment for kindness. When we ask ourselves the question, what in this moment is truly lacking, you know, we may come up with a very long list. But still we can come back to actually the body, come back to asking that question, beginning to calm the body, beginning to calm the narrative, beginning to understand perhaps that really the causes for joy and sorrow actually really lie in our own heart. The second, as you know, this is one reason why we, we actually do put so much emphasis upon formal practice. You know, we don't do it actually to make you suffer or be tormented, you know. But there is something very profound in actually beginning to taste inwardly generated happiness. There's something very profound about beginning to taste inwardly generated joy and peacefulness. It so radically changes our relationship to all things and all people in the world. It so radically reduces this sense of leaning and this sense of lack and this sense of need. Now, very much linked to this craving for sensual pleasure is the, is the almost its reverse, but its close companion of ill will or aversion. We want what we don't have, and we reject often what we do have and where we are. These are, these are co-joined patterns. Each needs and feeds off each other. And there's actually way too much to say about ill will in the time that I have left here. But I think it is important to say that the most profound shift that I ever see anybody make, and I think you probably see this in your clients and your patients, the most profound shift that I ever see anybody make is the shift from aversion to kindness. I can think of no bigger transformation in terms of changing our shape of the world, changing the way that we see, to shift from aversion to befriending. Now, ill will is not a stranger to us. You know, we can experience it in so many ways, directed outwardly to other people, to the world of experience, in the voices of, of judgment. We feel it so much directed inwardly, in the voices of self-judgment and blame and condemnation and comparing. And it's such a huge landscape, ill will, you know, impatience, frustration, jealousy, intolerance, irritation. And it really has a big narrative. It really is a feeder of narrative. Have you ever noticed if, if you know, on retreat, you know, it doesn't take us long to start writing stories about everybody um, that we've never met before. But you notice if somebody irritates you, <laughs> everything about them irritates you. I mean, you start with just a little irritation and then pretty soon you've got a whole world of irritation. Even the, the color of their socks, you know, is really bad choice, you know. And who would do that, you know? Who would wear those, you know? It has such a big narrative, ill will. I am, you are. And it's an activation of a much deeper tendency, as I mentioned, of hatred and fear. The way that we create the other. Ill will creates the other. So does craving create the other? 
craving creates the other, in terms of the other being being able to satisfy and please us. Ill, we, Ill will creates the other in terms of what we fear and what we want to be distanced from and disconnected from, what we argue with. You know, sometimes the other, of course, is external in people, events, experiences, and sometimes the other is internal. The chronic illness we hate, the pain we, we reject, the difficult thoughts we condemn. We make them into the other that we are in contention with, and it becomes a medium for disconnection perpetuating distress and again taking us very far away from the intentions and the aspirations that we hold most dearly. Now one of the primary difficult dimensions of ill will is the amount of ill will we direct to ill will. I really shouldn't be experiencing this. I don't want to be the kind of person who's having these really awful thoughts and these awful aversions. You know, I don't want to be the kind of person who's so judgmental, and that triggers craving, doesn't it? I want to be the kind of person who's really kind. You know, I want to be the real kind of person who's really accepting. You know, really compassionate. Or well, I'm not that kind of person. So heaps of more ill will upon ill will. It's a closed feedback loop. And one of the primary effects of mindfulness, is my understanding, is, is it actually does really deepen our capacity for resilience. You know? So in deepening our capacity for resilience, you know, that capacity to sustain attention rather than immediately fleeing or abandoning the uncomfortable or the difficult. In deepening that capacity for resilience, we're deepening our capacity actually for tolerance and to be able to include discomfort without patterning it with ill will and aversion. This is, very, this is a very hugely significant step to actually deepen that resilience level. Being able to meet the uncomfortable and the unpleasant without the cascading into a cycle of aversion. Developing our capacity to meet the pleasant and the unpleasant a little bit more equally and to befriend, to befriend the uncomfortable to befriend the unpleasant, to be curious without being reactive. This is experience so explicitly cultivated, and we will actually engage in this this evening, in the, 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 the cultivation of the, this capacity for befriending. is so, so explicitly cultivated, so central in the foundational tradition. And I know it's a huge ongoing discussion within the world of MBCT and MBSR and, you know, contemporary applications, you know, because you see in moments of distress, what's the first thing to disappear? Is kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. In moments of distress, what is most needed? You know, kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity. You know, so there's this, endless, there's this ongoing discussion, which does have a future, actually. So the discussion has got some legs about actually how, to, how do we highlight this attitude? How do we remember this attitude ourselves in the face of the difficult? How do we train ourselves to remember this possibility of standing near to rather than dissociating? Sleepiness and dullness, as I mentioned, I'm not talking about honest fatigue. It's actually our most favorite checkout technique. It's numbness. It's not feeling. 
it's dissociating. Now, it is true for some people in their life, you know, children who are traumatized or very traumatic experience. I actually feel that at times this numbness has been a survival mechanism. It's been the only way people may, who've had no other mechanisms, been able to actually uh, hold themselves or, 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 or find some safety. But it also becomes a habit pattern. There's a lot of different spectrum within this, you know, because we're not just talking in sleepiness and dullness about just falling asleep. We're talking about this kind of flatness that comes into the mind, the collapse of energy, the collapse of intention. The, so, you know, you see it in the collapse of your posture. But, you know, it's this collapse of interest. And this often arises in the face of disappointed expectations or uh, disappointed aspirations or feelings of helplessness. We just want to check out. We want to get as far away from it as possible or not feel it. Not feel it. So this kind of fog descends. It's a, sometimes it's just a sort of dreaminess. Sometimes it doesn't even feel that unpleasant. Time goes really fast. You know, you come into a sitting, you know, where, you, you know, and have a good old dose of sloth and torpor, you know, and the bell's going, it seems, in the wink of an eye, you know, there, gosh, that sitting was over quick, you know. So it doesn't actually feel that pleasant unless we want to, unpleasant unless we want to be awake. Then it feels quite unpleasant. It's a collapse of engagement. And actually what we become aware of, I think, with, with sleepiness and dullness, the way in which our attention is so stimulation-bound, how much we rely upon stimulation to feel awake and to feel alive. You know, so very often, you know, in, in sleepiness and dullness, you know, we find it does trigger actually often craving for sensual pleasure because we're looking for something to make us feel awake. We're looking for something to make us feel alive and, and present. Um, if we can muster enough energy, even for some craving for sensual pleasure, sometimes even that's hard to find in the midst of sleepiness and dullness. But we actually see, you know, and actually, again, the reason in, we emphasize so much in formal practice is, is that we are learning to connect with an, a, a sense of inwardly generated aliveness born of wakefulness. Now, it's interesting for me, I, I think for, for me, a lot of these patterns, you know, I really would recommend investigation, I would recommend, uh, you know, a lot of kindness, a lot of compassion, a lot of curiosity. With sleepiness and dullness, sometimes it's such a difficult habit pattern to actually find any way through. It's the one, I think, where I often recommend a little bit more conscious intervention. Stand up. You know, do something with your posture that takes some effort to sustain. Don't try to stay with the breath. You're bound to f disappear. Move your attention through your sense doors. Move your attention through all your sense doors. A little bit more proactive with sleepiness and dullness. Restlessness and worry are the near enemies of sleepiness and dullness. We live in an agitated world, and we can all be too familiar with an agitated mind and an agitated body, and we worry. You know, we are prone to worry. We want to so much to guarantee a certain future. You know, we so much want to ensure a better future or a perfect moment. So we worry, you know, we worry about events, we, we plan, we rehearse, and we don't always see how so much of it is a sort of mechanism to try and control the moment that's coming, even though we know we can't do that. 
And yet it, it so impacts the body, it so impacts the mind. And, and we've mentioned as counterintuitive as it seems, the antidote is to be still. To be still first in the body, to walk more slowly, to emphasize stillness in the body. The antidote is restraint, being mindful of what we do with our sense doors. The antidote is actually to, to highlight more strongly our, our intention to focus, to be so close to the breathing, every step of every little moment of it, to be so close to the body, allowing the mind to begin to find some ease and connection with simplicity and with being present. We actually really understand how much restlessness and worry is, is generated by the anxious self. The anxious self that doesn't feel safe in the world, the anxious self that is always looking for props to make me feel safe, and I'm going to do that through thought, mostly. Through thought, through planning, through rehearsing, through leaning into the future, and we see what actually happens in our minds. Now, in case you haven't had enough bad news, I just want to spend a little time with skeptical doubt. And this is not about the kind of doubt that's really encouraged in this teaching. You know, to check things out for yourself. You know, to check things out in your own experience. Not to adopt belief systems. What we're talking about as a hindrance pattern is paralyzing doubt. This profound is usually the kind of doubt that's really rooted in self-doubt a lack of confidence inwardly, a lack of confidence in our sense of capacity. And so doubt, we, we doubt everything. We find it difficult to make decisions. We have long stories of being for and against. Sometimes we don't endeavor to take a step because we're convinced already of our failure. And we see how doubt just suffocates a sense of aspiration. You know, we just don't feel it's possible for us to be awake. Others, yes, but not really me. Not really me. You know, I remember once asking in a meditation hall for anybody who really truly had confidence in coming to the same awakening as the Buddha to raise their hand. It was very disappointing. <laughs> but we see how powerful that is. How powerful it is. How, how we wobble. You know, how we get swayed, you know, how we really f find it so difficult to plant our feet, you know. The word in Pali for confidence is sada, and sometimes translated as to set our heart upon. What we set our heart upon, we set our feet upon that path. We set our feet upon that path. So in a way, I think there's a very, very deep value in giving time to reflecting about what we set our heart upon, because that's where our energy goes, that's where our attention goes, that's where our time goes, to actually really clarify almost in our own minds what are our aspirations as human beings, what do we deep, most deeply value, what do we sense is, is our possibilities as human beings in this pathway. How much do we really value the possibilities of, you know, really profound and unshakable kindness and compassion and, and, and steadiness and joy? How much do we bring that into focus and really reflect upon our relationship 
to those deepest aspirations and those deepest possibilities and values. And it doesn't mean that, that doubt never arises. Of course it does. And we really understand that in this pathway, it's not linear, you know. It, 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 everybody has moments where they falter. Everybody has moments that are really difficult. Sometimes our lives crumble and our worlds crumble and we can feel quite lost for times. But we know it's not linear. And yet what is, lies underneath that knowing is this sense of possibility of returning to those intentions, those aspirations, and begin to plant the seeds of confidence. You can't argue with doubt. You cannot talk yourself out of doubt. In a way, I would almost say it's taking a leap, but sometimes it's just taking a small step. You know, sometimes it's just about making a choice rather than fostering that story of incapacity. Let me take these next three moments with actually just feeling this body being alive and being awake. Sometimes that's enough. It's about where we place our attention and where we make our home. It is helpful, I think, throughout the day in the retreat, as we go through the re day in the retreat, you know, to take regular moments to pause and to, to really just get a sense of the winds of these obscuring states moving through us, to really begin to develop that, that vocabulary and that simple knowing. And sometimes really asking ourselves, what does this need? What does this need? What is helpful here? And to keep resetting intention. You know, intention, because these patterns sabotage intention, intention so much needs to be reset. You know, it's not something we just wake up with in the morning and think we're going to coast all day with that one intention. We, we reset intention every moment of forgetfulness. And that's a way of beginning to step out of these patterns and to return to the simplicity. And that is actually the beginning of being awake, just in that one moment. Thank you for your attention. If we just take a moment quietly together. So we have some time for some walking and some of you also have a group at this time. <laughs> 